Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Acts. Surprise, surprise, it is about Pentecost. A reading for Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and the NRSV version, which is going to be slightly different than the Bible pews, pew Bibles. So as we've been talking about this morning, today is Pentecost. Uh, in this New Testament passage from the book of Acts, um, uh, it's Luke's second volume. Uh, we have the Gospel of Luke and then the second volume, the, uh, the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, telling the story of, of how the gospel, uh, the good news of Jesus Christ, roared into Jerusalem like a hurricane and blew into every corner of the known world. And then Pentecost, it's, it's where that started. So in a real way, this is the story of the birth of the church. So I would ask that you would listen and hear God's word in the story of Pentecost from Acts chapter 2. And I would ask for a little bit of grace. There are some words in here that are pretty difficult to pronounce. And it's no more, I've been practicing, but it still they seem to trip me up. Uh, but let's listen to God's word this morning. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like a rush of violent wind. It filled up the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them. And a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak other languages. As the Spirit had given, given them that ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each, uh, each one heard them speaking in their native language. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, languages we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Here's the word, lies the word of God. Thanks be to God. True communication is exceedingly rare. My wife, Debbie, with whom I have traveled quite a bit, will confirm this if you ask her. She will confirm that, yes, I am that unfortunate travel companion with a certain pathology. And it's a pathology that I've been trying to manage and control over the years, and it has to do with those interpretive panels that the designers of a museum or a historical site so kindly install and provide for you 
and they put on these interpretive panels information that they're convinced you need to know. And see, that's kind of the problem. Is because these people have gone to the effort of providing this interpretive panel, and because they have put on it information that they think that I need to know, I find it tremendously difficult to walk past any one of those interpretive panels without reading every single word. You can see what a long-suffering woman I have married. And yes, this pathology has been a burden to Debbie over the years, but it does have an upside in a way. And the upside is that somewhere deep inside my brain are all sorts of relatively unimportant facts, <laughs> most of which I can never remember. But every once in a while, when I least expect it, some random fact will sort of pop up into my conscious thought. And that is what happened a few weeks ago when I was wondering what I should say about Luke's account of Pentecost that Eric just read. I can actually remember the interpretive panel on which this particular random fact was printed. It was at Hemis State Monument in Hemis, New Mexico. And that is about an hour, hour and a half northwest of Albuquerque, where Debbie and I lived at the time. And Hemis State Monument is the original site of the Hemis Pueblo. And if you know New Mexico, a pueblo um, is one of those adobe kind of interconnected stacks of residences which the indigenous people of New Mexico, at least the, the pueblo indigenous people, lived in. And this is the original Hemis Pueblo where the Hemis tribe was living when the Spanish arrived in the 1600s. And Hemis Pueblo is one of a number, I'd say 15 or 20 Pueblos that are sort of spread out around north-central New Mexico. And some of these Pueblos are actually still inhabited by the tribes. But this interpretive panel at this historical site was attempting to put this particular people, the Hemis tribe, into that greater context, into the context of the larger Pueblo culture of north-central New Mexico. And what it said was something that really surprised me, that when the Spanish arrived in 1600s, they found three Pueblos, one of which was the Hemis Pueblo, that each of the three were really just 10 or 15 miles apart from each other. And at the three Pueblos, they spoke completely different Pueblo languages, distinct Pueblo languages. And that yes, while these three languages were related, and now linguists talk about them being part of the Tanoan group of languages, these three languages were in fact mutually unintelligible. What that means, and this blew my mind, was that this Pueblo cousin here in this Pueblo would uh, speak an entirely different language of the other Pueblo cousin that is right over the mesa where you can almost see it. And that that 
Pueblo cousin wouldn't understand what this particular Pueblo cousin was saying. And I find, found myself really agreeing with those Spaniards when they showed up. How can this be? Because as an outsider, I found these cultures so completely similar. They seemed identical to me, and they were near neighbors, yet they could not understand what their neighbors were saying. And that's when it dawned on me. Pre-contact indigenous New Mexico was just a smaller version of how it was and how it still is everywhere. Pueblo people had no monopoly on mutual unintelligibility. Instead, it occurred to me that to be mutually unintelligible is actually kind of a universal human tendency. It is the case between tribes, between nations, between cultures, for sure, but at least as often between people who speak the same language. For all the talking we do, all the jabber and noise and attempts at communication, much of it, most of the time, most of the time ends up sounding like Swahili. True communication is exceedingly rare. Sociologists claim that in these last 20 years, we Americans have been undergoing what they call the big sort. The big sort. As all of us Americans increasingly withdraw into bubbles of like-minded people, people who think and live and vote the same way we do, we get our news from different sources, we believe opposite facts, we live in different worlds, and we increasingly discover that our words have become mutually unintelligible. But it's not just Republicans and Democrats. It is boomers and millennials. It is minorities and Anglos. It is blacks and police. But it's also bosses and employees. It is parents and children. It is husbands and wives. We hear one another. We hear the words. But it's just so frequently mutually unintelligible. You'd almost think there was something wrong with our ears. And biblically speaking, there is. So, the book of Genesis, in the form of a series of wonderful and simple stories, explains the most basic facts about us humans, our human condition, if you will. It describes, of course, our identity as God's beloved creatures, but it also describes our current predicament, our fall from our created intention. And in the 11th chapter of Genesis, and this is just before Abraham shows up in the story, Genesis gives us one more of those global stories about how we got where we are. It's right after the flood where there was this new hope that humankind would get it right. But nope, we screw it up again. Here's what Genesis tells us. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. 
Then the people said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we shall be scattered upon the face of the whole earth. So the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the mortals had built, and the Lord said, Look, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building that tower. Therefore, it was called Babel. Because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. As I think about this story, about what it means, I think in narrative form, it's asking a question. It's asking, what is it about human nature and what is it about the state of our relationship with God that seems to continually undermine the process of understanding each other and why is it that talking seems relatively easy we all do it most of the time while listening really listening comprehending understanding is a skill so much more rare exceedingly rare and one in which we all fall short every day and I bet, I'm convinced, every person sitting in this room right now knows firsthand the toll that this deficit in listening skills, this deficit that we all share, takes on the relationships in our lives. Think about your family. Think about your marriage, your office, your school, your friendships. I'm betting that you can name a situation, a conversation, maybe even this last week, in which there was misunderstanding, there was conflict, there was pain that you caused, and that could have been avoided if you just listened better. Am I right? Well, the story of the Tower of Babel makes a rather sophisticated theological claim. And that is that while differing languages might complicate human communication, they're really just a symptom of a deeper problem. That the ultimate cause of mutual unintelligibility is in fact human self-centeredness, human arrogance, human insecurity, the curse of Babel, the story tells us, is one that humankind brings on itself. You see, this tower that they're building is not just an item on that ever-elusive infrastructure bill. It is a symbol of the temptation that has plagued humankind, the human creature, since day one. It's a symbol of humans trying to take the place of God. Let us build a tower to heaven, they say, and make a name for ourselves. Well, in an Old Testament perspective, there's really only one name that matters, and it's God's. The people have forgotten that name. 
They have turned their focus in on themselves. And they've poured all of this energy, not to mention all of this concrete, into creating the kind of lives in which God is not necessary. Does that sound familiar? And the point that Genesis is making is that you can choose to do that. You can choose to make yourself and your desires the center of your life, but the first casualty of that choice is going to be your ears. Your ability to hear anyone around you. And we each know the truth of that. What is it that really keeps me from listening to the people around me every day? Well, it's my fear-driven focus on myself and my goals and my needs and my desires. At some level, we're each aware that to really allow ourselves to listen, to really hear whatever this other person is telling us is always to risk. It's always to risk the way that I've organized my existence and wrapped my life around my own concerns and my own ambitions and my own self. Which means that we, too, live in Babel. This morning, I hope that this Old Testament detour, this bit of Old Testament background, a big biblical theological picture, gives us, as it were, some fresh ears to hear Luke's story of the Pentecost. This familiar but still rather strange episode that takes all of the disciples by surprise 50 days after Passover. That's why the Jews called it Pentecost. It's 50 days after Passover, seven weeks after Jesus' resurrection. Now, most of the time, over the years that I've been a Christian, as I've thought and heard sermons about this passage, as I've given sermons about this passage, what we tend to focus in on is the mouths in the story. Specifically, the miraculous sounds of speech that the disciples find themselves uttering. And obviously, there is speaking in this story. In some miraculous ways, the tongue, in some miraculous way, the tongues of Jesus' followers are let loose. And yes, I suspect this was a pretty noisy, boisterous moment in the life of the church. And I'd even have to admit that it was probably closer to Pentecostal worship than typical Presbyterian worship. But I wonder if the focus on speaking causes us to misunderstand what's happening. To see this as something of a circus show that these, this crowd of spectators observes. There's the crazy pyrotechnics, there's the sound of the roaring wind, and there's this mystifying linguistic miracle. And it's kind of this advanced level of spirituality, this ecstatic state that these crazy first Christians achieve as everyone's looking on. But that in their very achieving of it, they sort of separate themselves out, become special compared to those who are watching. But is that really what's going on here? One way of exploring an answer is to ask exactly why are the people in the crowd, as Luke tells us, amazed and astonished and bewildered. That's pretty strong language. Was that simply because they were speaking in tongues? 
Well, that's really not what Luke says. And in fact, glossolalia, and this is a sociological or a psychological reality, it's a religious phenomena of someone trance-like speaking in an unrecognizable language was not unknown among the pagan religions, among the other ecstatic religions in ancient Greek and Rome. Instead, Luke tells us that what blows these people's minds is not the speaking, it's the hearing. And so they demand to know, how is it that we each hear in our own native language? Well, and then Luke pushes it even a step further. What does this mean? He records the people in that crowd asking. Well, I don't think that Luke gives us that just as a rhetorical question or as an expression. I think Luke is asking us, his more observant, thoughtful readers, to look at what's going on here and ask, in the big biblical picture, what does this mean? And then, just in case any of us readers are snoozing, he lays it on thick. Luke takes two verses to inventory each separate nationality represented that day to force Eric to struggle over all of those place names this morning. There are 17 of them in two verses. Now, think about it. Luke could have just said, well, all sorts of different people were in town from a bunch of places. But instead, he, he does this tour of the United Nations or maybe tour of the Roman Empire. All the different languages and cultures that anyone could think of at that time. Well, Luke isn't being real subtle here. He is begging for us readers to cast our memories back to where, in a biblical sense, all these different languages came from. And when we do, we remember the curse of Babel back in Genesis, the curse that we humans have brought on ourselves, the way that we have let our own sinfulness clog our ears. And that's when the real miracle of Pentecost hits you. It isn't really about talking. It's about listening. The crowd gathered that day is astonished, perplexed, bewildered because they have been given something exceedingly rare among human beings. They have just been given ears that truly hear and truly understand. What the supernatural, epic-changing power of the Holy Spirit has done in that courtyard in Jerusalem is to reverse, to revoke the curse of Babel. That is why Pentecost is such a big deal. It's bigger than a mere show, bigger than a circus oddity. All humankind is part of this. The speakers and the listeners and the Jews and the Gentiles. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has changed a fundamental fact of existence. And this scene is the physical manifestation of it. So how did it happen? Well, I think there's a clue in a phrase that Luke puts in his account. He says that all of the people heard the disciples speaking of God's deeds of power. God's deeds of power. As opposed to the Babel story, which was all about human deeds of ambition. Something 
has shifted. Something's changed in humankind's ability to set aside their own insecurities and ambitions and needs and fears and to allow their lives to be built on something else. The grace and the love found in Jesus Christ, found in his journey to the cross and in God's unexpected act of resurrection has changed the very calculus of human identity. We have, in Jesus Christ, experienced love firsthand and we're finally freed to practice it. Well, I think that another word for love is listening. Think about it. Careful, active, engaged, empathetic, empathetic listening. Listening for the other, as other, in all of their uniqueness and particular, particularity. In fact, that's exactly what I find so fascinating about this miracle, this reverse Babel story, is that the rich variety of the human, of the, of the world's languages, don't disappear in the story of Pentecost. This is a reversal of Babel, but the Holy Spirit does not take humankind back to the way it was before Babel. Now, all of those languages are retained, but the human capacity to hear and understand this capacity that was wired into us from the start but was damaged at the fall has been restored by the power of the Holy Spirit, the unleashed power of love. And so... Sons and daughters and young people and old people, it is time for us to dream dreams and see visions. If, as we celebrate today on Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on us too, if we too are meant to be the embodied evidence that the curse of Babel has been decisively and forever reversed in Jesus Christ, what does Pentecost look like in your life? To put this another way, who is there in your life this week that the power of the Holy Spirit will enable you to really hear in a new way? Who can you think of who, by trusting God with your goals and your fears and your identity, you can risk to really hear? Who while you know they're speaking the same words that they always have, you suddenly hear as if it is your own native language so that you too find yourself amazed and astonished and bewildered at something exceedingly rare, at the newly powerful ears that the Holy Spirit has given all of us. Thanks be to God. Amen.